Up next on episode 64 of Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff discuss the disappointment of Google AdWords, the difference in skill set between programmers and testers, and the value of standards groups to working programmers from IT Conversations. Hi, this is Phil Windley. Today I'm excited to bring you another great program from Stack Overflow with Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood here on IT Conversations. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. Hey, it's podcasting with Joel Atwood and Jeff Spolsky. I'm your host, Joel Atwood. <laughs> and I'm your buddy, Jeff Spolsky. Hey, Jeff. So how's it going? <laughs> Good. You know, we had a request for the show to be all about Twitter, like just the whole show. We just I, talk about Twitter. We talk about how we use Twitter, what Twitter's good for, maybe ways to make money using Twitter. You nice know time. how you make money using Twitter? How? You how? spam Tell bloggers. <laughs> okay. There's so got to be enough. something in there for the PR people. Yeah. So probably we shouldn't talk about it. I'm just going to say the T word because I know there were some complaints last time. and I, f I feel bad. It, so you, there's we'll have different topics. Because we talk about it too much or – I think I bring it up occasionally. I blame me, frankly. This the, is one area where I do not... Usually I blame you, but I'm going <laughs> to blame me for this one. The one thing you can say about Twitter is it's like if you're into it, you're into it, and you want to talk about it a lot. If you're not into it, you're like, just shut the hell up already. I get That's right. it. It's your instant messaging service on your cell phone or something. I know, I know. Yeah, exactly. So I have a different topic we could talk about. Actually, well, actually, yeah. before I go into that topic, so let's talk a little bit of it about Stack Exchange. So we had Do our that. first meeting with Aaron, and you didn't tell me that Aaron has like 10,000 reputation on Stack Overflow. That's why we hired him. I know. I was very impressed. So I'm not going to out him, but you can find him. If you're a Stack Overflow user, you can find him and you, you can bother him <laughs> <laughs> about Stack Exchange and like how it's going to work and all that stuff. Well, he does, uh, um, he does follow the Stack Exchange tag on meta.stackoverflow.com, so that's a good way to put in your feature requests and ideas and questions about Stack Exchange. That's right. No, I definitely encourage that. Just tag everything Stack Exchange. Uh, eventually, I think Stack Exchange will host its own probably – discussion about itself. But until then, Meta is totally an appropriate place to do that. Mm -hmm. Just make sure it's tagged Stack Exchange, and I'm sure Aaron will look at it. Mm -hmm. um, so we're still good on our timeline as far as what was the date on Stack Exchange? Well, we were going to go into beta uh, September 1st, and I think that right now evidence-based scheduling is giving him a more than 50% chance of actually doing that. So Nice. Or maybe just under. Well, you know, I have another type of scheduling. I'm going to launch uh, some software for it. It's going to be uh, 6 to 8 weekscom <laughs> You can sign up there and get an account. And uh, and you will activate your account 6 to 8 weeks. Yeah, there's just one button that says predict, and then it comes up and says 6 to 8 weeks. Awesome. awesome. Yeah, and it's only twenty nine ninety five per month. What if somebody from the Microsoft Office team goes, goes on there and, and clicks on that site? Well, I guess they'll have to just pay their twenty nine ninety five and find out. You know. But they, it takes them three three years to come up with a new release. <laughs> it makes me not feel so bad that Fogbugs took two years for, for Seven O to come out. How is uh, Seven doing? I mean, how how is uh, you know, great, bugs? great? Yeah, well, we've already done another patch, I think, and we've done we've had to do things to the servers to make them support the new and increase the load. Uh, I see. So there was uh, some 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 patching and rearranging there. I see. Um, well, but yeah, yeah, it's doing great. I'm starting to uh, today. I tried to plan the travel for Stack Overflow dev days. I've got almost all the speakers lined up. Uh, all those people that helped us find Python speakers last week, much appreciated. And um, I'm just going to be away from home for like three weeks or a month, practically. I know. Yeah, you totally signed up for the whole deal. I signed up for just the California part. Right. I am now sort of thinking that I might go to London. That'd be cool. Uh, because I feel like I have to make a pilgrimage to, to John Skeet, basically. Oh, a pilgrimage uh, well, to the John Skeet land. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I, I'm, I'm actually kidding. But there were a number of people that actually requested. There was a lot of demand, strangely. 
I mean, I had people emailing sure. me specifically asking me to go to this one, and and I've never been, and I would like to go. We so. have uh, there are like nine hundred people going to be in the London uh, Dev Days, and it's such a big one. That's the yeah. other reason to go. So I feel like we have one. such a huge audience there, out of respect for the audience, and mm-hmm. you know, because John Skeet is there, then you know, yeah, that might make sense. I just need to get my passport in order. Um, actually, that's a to do item for today. <laughs> Oh yeah. That's, uh, so that's I might, so I might. It, there's a high probability of me going, and I got permission from the boss, aka my wife, to to do this. So cool. Yeah, that might be kind of fun. Just take the baby, and I'll be fine. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll see. Exactly. Yeah, we'll see. Um, Everything else logistically good on on Dev Days fronts. We had a lot of interest in people speaking. Uh, there's some really cool speakers we've got lined up. I was really impressed. Yes, we do. We have. Uh, who are the? I mean, a, a lot of them are. Um, just well-known people on Stack Overflow who are experts on topics and have done some speaking. Uh, a lot of them are well-known speakers in their fields. A lot of them are people like Rory Blythe, who we just like, mm-hmm. uh, Scott Hanselman. Uh, those were Miguel DiCaza agreed on, on this very episode. Um, John Resig is going to be talking about jQuery in Boston. Uh, who else? What other, what other big names do we have? Uh, those are the ones I was thinking of, but lots. I, mean, yeah. I, I don't think you'll be disappointed, except for the Des Moines leg. It's been a disappointment. De- yeah, Des Moines. It's just Madge from the from the Big Ben. <laughs> the, the, the Big Ben. I keep people joint. email us, and they're like, they're like, darn it, they're like we really want. I feel bad. I shouldn't make these jokes because I, I like Des Moines. My wife is from Iowa. That's uh-huh. why I'm allowed to make jokes about Iowa because I have permission from my wife for the right, records. So. Right, right. That's that's a state that entirely consists of vowels. Think about it. Um, yeah, yeah. We'll have. Uh, I, I'm. I'm just like like days away from having enough of the of the speakers nailed down that I can actually start making the schedules for each city, uh, and and put putting them up there. Oh cool. wait, uh, we forgot. Damien, oh yeah, Damien Katz. Are you going to do? Yep. Sorry. What were you? Well, I'm sorry. Go ahead on the Austin thing. Damien Katz and uh, oh, Jason, Jason Cohen. Nice. Very uh, nice. Very nice. And but, you'll you'll yeah. blog once you have the full roster up. You'll do a full blog entry about that, right? Heck yeah. Okay, good. Oh, good yeah. deal. There, okay. yeah. excellent. And it's, it's just, I mean, every city is going to be different. So if you want to go to all ten cities, you know, it'll it'll be a little different. Yes. Also, one th- another thing on my to do list is I'm, I'm going to get stickers made. I have I had the coding horror stickers made a, a while back, and I've been very happy with the company that I used to make those. And I get a lot of compliments on those stickers for its quality and stuff. So there will be stickers for all the family sites. Um, and I think I'm actually going to. Uh, I don't know if we talked about this on the podcast, but the How to Geek is now sort of part of our League of Justice. I don't know if we actually covered this on the podcast. <laughs> we, um, yeah, no, I don't know. We have we talked about superuser.com? What do you mean? Have we talked about it? Of I course, we talked. About All it. right. Yeah, we have. Uh, but this is, and there's another member of our League of Justice that I haven't announced yet, but I will hopefully soon once they're closer to actually releasing. Um, where, so let me talk about the philosophy of the League of Justice. Is one is that. I don't feel like Stack Overflow needs to do everything in the world. Like I feel like we, we need to partner with other entities that do related things to what we're doing, and we have very compatible mindsets about putting good information on the, on the Internet, like working with the community instead of against it. Um, generally, copacetic-type philosophies of, of the type of information you want to see on the Internet – uh, you want to sort of raise the bar for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's my philosophy. And I feel like these are also areas we're not going to get into directly. Like there's – I know you have this vision of like <laughs> us localizing and doing every possible thing under the sun. But I, I just don't know that that's <laughs> I like the way you group that under there, localizing and everything under the sun. <laughs> one minute, it's like one minute you're translating your website into Japanese and the next minute it's all about how to put up lemonade stands for, for the teenage kids with the lemonade stands. And we exactly. got lemonade stand lemonade. What would it be? Sourlemonade.com. <laughs> but these are areas <laughs> I don't see us getting lemonade. into in any reasonable time frame. Uh-huh. And I would rather sort of partner with people that we like and feel like we can be successful together with, rather than try to compete with them in sort of a crappy way. Mm. I want to stick to our core competencies, such as they are, um, while broadening the scope with with partnerships. So that's kind of the philosophy there, um, in terms of the. Excuse me, the public internet presence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to have stickers made, but I think I'll have stickers made for How To Geek as well so that he can have stickers just as a nice little thank you for him doing stuff with us. And so people will, will, will be given these stickers at the Stack Overflow Dev Days? Yes, there will be tons and tons of these can stickers. We, can we give them out maybe as people are leaving so that we don't get them all over the venue and have to pay a huge cleanup fee? 
We're gonna be no, these are nice stickers, nice, man. We're gonna be these are, these are nice quality venues. stickers. We're going yeah, to places are... like concert halls and 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 you know concert you know like fancy opera houses and stuff like that. Yeah, you, well, I remember in your world tour you talked about one of the takeaways. This is V two of mm-hmm. the world tour, which yeah. is nice. Yeah, because we get all the benefit of your experience in doing this the first time. And I remember you talked about one of the key takeaways was have a really nice venue. Like, don't skimp on the venue because yep. that just hurts. So yeah, it's just are- so painful when you're at one of those sort of second tier, you know, places where the motivational speakers go and the, there's a strike <laughs> going on out in front. And I am never going back to Chicago. I'm sorry, Chicago, but you guys just did not host us well. Yeah, you're like in a van down by the river sort of affair. Mm-hmm. And we'll also have T-shirts now. I believe Michael's going to take the T-shirt thing, and we're also working with uh, caps. I think there's some kind of cap, like a yeah. visor that's just echo flow on it. Yeah, we're working on a more of a long-term solution for that as well. Because my my experience with the stickers is like the stickers are awesome, and I actually I'm looking at them. I have a big box of them sitting next to my desk, but the sending them out is just painful. Oh, here's you know? what you do. How big are they? They're not very big. I mean, do I you have enough if somebody sends you a an envelope that you would send it back to them? Yeah, but you could just use the self-addressed stamped envelope system. Ah, but that's a pain. Self-addressed stamped envelope. Send it to Zoom but... Box Three Five Zero Boston Mass O Two One Three Four. I remember that. Yeah. So what you do is you take an envelope and you put your name on it. Isn't that yeah, weird? And your address, no. and you put a stamp no. in the top right-hand corner, and then you fold that in thirds and put it in another envelope. No, you don't want to do self-addressed stamped envelope because then all you got to do well, is stick just... it in and mail it. That's putting the burden on the, the people that want the But they're getting the free has, sticker. Of course that burden should be on them. What are you supposed to... Well, I actually have done that. I, I, excuse me. For the Stack Overflow stickers, I said, okay, you can either pay me or you can send me a, a SASE, right? SAS or whatever. Self-addressed yep. stamped envelope. Almost nobody does this. I think I've gotten oh. one. Well, let's, let's advertise it now. Can I give out your address? <laughs> no, I don't, want to, I don't want to do that. All I'm right, send, the send me a box and I'll do it. No, 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 no. I think there's a better way to do this. There's some kind of fulfillment model that we can... We're looking into to try to figure this out. So oh, man, this, this is going to be some kind of a logistics. You're going to get a warehouse down by the Memphis airport next to the UPS distribution center. FedEx, I think, is what you're thinking of. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Yeah. Yes. So the, the stickers are in the work, and more swag is in the works. Um, so that's all coming for sure. And definitely we'll be ready in time for dev days. That's pretty important. Yeah. You've got to have swag. You can't go to an event and not have swag. That would be sure. some fundamental law of the universe would sure. be violated. Sure, sure. That wasn't, in fact, true. So I have another topic we can actually talk about that I haven't talked about in a long time and actually wanted to was the whole advertising thing. Well, what is like, the whole advertising thing? Well, okay. So <clears throat> when we started with, with the beta and, and the public website launch, we didn't really have any advertising because we hadn't set any of that stuff up. And plus, our website wasn't popular, so it didn't really matter. <laughs> right. you know? yeah. It's like, we buy product X. It's like, nobody cares. Yeah. And one of the things people asked was, why don't you show... Uh, relevant advertising. So if I'm on, say, you know, a Unix tag, I'm looking up something related to Bash, um, right. y- then show me you know, Unix and, and yeah, Linux. for Unix, yeah. Yeah, yeah and that, that was the theory. And then, so the immediate thing that we, we looked at was, well, that's what AdWords, Google's AdWords program, that's what it's supposed to do. Right. It's supposed to analyze the page, and there's plenty of content on most Stack Overflow questions. Say it has two or three answers. That's a re- pretty solid... Plus the tag. The tag, yeah. You would think, in theory, you're giving the engine that Google has set up for this AdWords thing, you're giving it enough information to, to spit back ads that are relevant to this particular audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was the, the inspiration for setting that up, uh, to see if we could actually get relevant advertising on some of these tags where we just don't have anything you know, to sell there. You know, mm-hmm. there's, no, there's no advertisers that we directly work with that would be interested in that space yet. Oh, so, so you're talking about using Google as a, a fallback to show some ads if we have no content well, for that subject matter. As a fallback, but yeah. in, in the beginning, it was also the only kind of advertising we had. It was like the yep. first type of advertising we really experimented. And we got like, what, 18 cents a year or something was what we were making from it. Well, so this is my complaint, and we just recently turned off Google AdWords completely um, because it, it wasn't even worth the minimal... It just wasn't worth the time, which is really depressing considering... Yeah. So, Stack Overflow as it is now gets a ton of traffic. I think we mentioned, I don't know if I mentioned the last podcast, we had a peak last week of 965,000 page views in one day. Wow. So we're, we're on track to get up to a million page views a day probably this month without, without a problem. Mm-hmm. So that's a ton of, of impressions. You know, yeah. ad you know what? And Google, if you guys can't figure out how to give us more than 38 cents from showing ads on a million page views, there's something fundamentally busted over there. 
it, it does seem wrong. Like it's the, it, it's the it bothers me that. Works. Well, because the reason I want this to work is this has always been the theory of, you know, advertised subsidized, advertising subsidized content was that it could be win-win. I mean, let's say imagine this working perfectly. If I go to a specific page on Stack Overflow, looking up say you know Visual Studio information, uh, I would see ads related to stuff that I'm interested in mm-hmm. potentially. Right? Mm-hmm. These aren't annoying, you know, uh, uh, punch the monkey ads because we're not going to run those on Stack Overflow. Right. Uh, these are theoretically ads that are relevant to what you do in your job, mm-hmm. or at least what you're looking at this question for an answer for. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Google ads just failed miserably uh, on every account. Uh, first of all, they would get triggered by the word Stack Overflow. I guess there's a lot of advertisers, really scammy advertisers, that advertise like registry cleaners and oh. uh, yeah. Fix stack overflow problems. So I had to first go in and manually block a list of like 40 URLs. <sighs> yep. This is completely manual. Like right. Google has no way uh, of doing this automatically. I had to go in, look at the ads, and then go to the AdWords UI and, and disable these to even get to relevance at all. Mm-hmm. If I didn't do that, the fact that Stack Overflow appears would be most of the ads would be these meaningless registry cleaner things that nobody cares about. Right. So even after doing that, um, it's just weird how to get triggered by certain words on the page that aren't really relevant to the topic. You mm-hmm. know, it, it seems to, to zero in on the strangest words sometimes. Like I remember one one time it was giving me like chimney cleaning. I'm like, what is triggering <laughs> chimney cleaning on this page? You no, know, clearly this it. is a site about programming. I guess what frustrated me the most about AdWords was that it couldn't say, okay, this is a site about programming and programmers. Let's start with that, at least. Start with that, right? Maybe, like, but they don't, be I some mean, yeah. Database in the sky where they're doing this stuff. Maybe they just don't have content. Maybe they did that, and then they just didn't have any ads to show programmers because it, there's not that much. There that, were some. The main developer. Well, this is, remember, we asked Jason Calcass, what always surprised me is that the programmers are a pretty good demographic. They make a lot of money, and they buy a lot of electronic gear. Couldn't you sell them, you know, Toyota Priuses and, and, and uh, iPods and, you know, that kind of stuff? Cell phone plans. Like, stuff that is not appropriate to the content of the page, but is appropriate to the demographic of the page, at least. Right. And I want to be clear that when this comes up, people always go, oh, well, programmers don't click on ads. Programmers run ad block. That's true. I mean, I agree with that. But if we contrast the ads that sort of we manually set up, that mm-hmm. we think are topical to our audience, their performance mm-hmm. versus AdWords, it's yeah. like order of magnitude difference. Sure, sure. So, yes, programmers don't, may not click on ads and, and may ad block stuff, but not to the degree that would explain the difference in performance. There's I mean, also that's con- something... Even ignoring the performance, there's another f- factor, which is that Google just sort of doesn't really tell you how, how the analytics is working. They just sort of keep some of the money and give you some of the money, and they kind of don't really tell you how much they're keeping and how much they're giving you or why or what the system is. And they just hope, you know, they basically tell you, well, this is our take-it-or-leave-it offer. Um, and some people seem to be taking it, so yay us. And I think that there's probably somebody at Google that sits there every day and tries to adjust what percentage of the revenue share Google keeps and is trying to figure out what's the maximum amount of revenue share they can keep before the, uh, the content network starts taking them, just literally taking them down and putting something else up. That's right. And our, in the final estimation, we eventually turned them off because they, they weren't topical enough. They performed terribly. Mm-hmm. And they often started to look bad, too. Google was actually allowing... Because usually, you know what the classic Google ad looks like, right? It's a blurb of text, blurb of text, blurb of text. Mm-hmm. Those are fairly inoffensive. That was one of the nice things about Google's AdWords was that they weren't annoying. They were just little blurbs of text that were theoretically relevant to the text on the page, in theory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and they, they weren't blasting in face with graphics. They were just kind of ambiently there. And that's nice. Well, they switched to this format where all of a sudden they allow, like, I'm talking like 40-point font. Like, one advertiser can have a humongous ad that's like, 40-point text. It's larger than any other text on our page. Oh. And you know the worst offender? Google Null. Like, I guess they would backfill. If they didn't have inventory, they would fill with their own ads for their Google Null. Yeah, they're probably not. It's probably worse than that. They're probably making the Null team pay for that using oh. some kind of weird internal money transfer. It was just brutal. Just to keep it, it honest. Was, it was so bad. And uh, it just... I. I get a little angry even thinking about it because this is something that sh- could, in theory, work. This is the ultimate programmer problem to the monetization problem. It's like you've got something cool, mm-hmm. you just put it on the web, and it gets really popular, right? So mm-hmm. that popularity costs you money in terms of bandwidth and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But 
if you have, say, Google AdWords, That'd then all of a sudden you, you make money from your art or whatever it is you're putting online. I mean, this is a key part of sort of the value proposition of the Internet is that popularity scales with income. In other words, the more popular your stuff becomes, the more money you stand to make. Well, with Stack Overflow, we did not see that. Like, Stack Overflow got very, very popular, and we saw virtually no scaling of income. It was just a trickle, and it stayed a trickle the whole time. Mm-hmm. So we've officially turned it off. Now, one thing we're Goodbye. actually looking at now to backfill, because mm-hmm. um, we can't sell all the ad inventory because the, the site is really popular, is we want to actually go handpick people that we think have cool stuff. Um, not, not as first-class ads, but as just filling inventory of like fun ads. Mm-hmm. We're going to approach companies and say, hey, for some, some nominal amount, you can be our fill. Mm-hmm. You know, because we think your stuff is cool and we think it's relevant to your to our our audience. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of stuff like ThinkGeek, right? Um, you know, Brando, that USB accessory site. Well, you don't even have to approach them. I'm sure ThinkGeek has an affiliate program, right? Sure, sure. So just but, stick stick some stuff in there, make your own ads, and then keep the affiliate payments for us. Right, but I guess what I'm getting at is, is the algorithm has failed. Like you've said in previous podcasts, yeah. it's all about the algorithm. Well, yeah. the algorithm has utterly failed. Oh yeah, they they really I, I don't I don't know what it is. You know what? It's just that, like not everything that Google does. Null is the perfect example. Not everything that Google does is going to be brilliant. <laughs> well, for some sites, well, here's what I understand: is how does anyone make money on AdWords? And by money, I don't mean like make a killing. I'm not talking like gold-plated Humvee money. I'm talking like enough money to fund like one person working. Because the um, amount of money we saw from Google, honestly, right. and this is the number I put on Twitter, so I'll just repeat it here: we make 50 times more from our own cultivating our own ads mm-hmm. than going with AdWords. And that doesn't mean we're insanely rich. It means that we made virtually nothing from AdWords. And this is a site that gets you know, almost a million page views per day. Man. So well, if we can't make it work, how does anyone how does anybody make, it? make it work? Well, what, it, what they do is they come up with something for which the ad bids are very, very expensive. Like, uh, uh, like those I, weird dis- diseases that you get if you were a coal miner or something. I see. Where there's a very specific word. And then you say, okay, what, my, my goal is to make a website that's going to attract these Google ads that are $50 oh. a piece or $80 a piece because they're being put there by the attorneys looking for clients who have this disease that want to sue somebody. Wow. Right? And, and so then they'll, they'll make like an automatically generated, and they'll actually do a, just a Google search. or they'll even, they, I think somebody will sell you an app that does this. It does a Google search. It finds a bunch of bits and pieces of content on, allegedly on that subject, cuts and pastes them into a big mishmash of a useless website that contains all the right words to appear to the Google search engine to be a fairly legitimate website about this topic. So now people search for this particular disease that their doctor told them they had, and they get a website that's completely computer-generated. It's just meaningless bits and pieces of sentences from around the Internet, but it's got the right keywords to make Google happy. And it's got a whole buttload of Google ads for lawyers that want to, uh, you know, that want to get your business and have paid, you know, are paying 50 or or $100 for a click. Wow. Uh, on their very specific, on these very, very specific keywords. You know, as soon as I said that, I realized that the, the way you would have to do this to make serious money with AdWords, because there's all these, mm-hmm. you know, shady places you go online. It's like, oh, look, I made a million dollars with AdWords. Mm-hmm. And you're right. You have to reverse optimize. You have to optimize for the things that get the highest bids. Sure. And it's totally backwards. This is, I don't think at all well, what Google has in I mind mean, when they came up with this system. No, it, it? it isn't. And it seems totally backwards. But when you think about it, I mean, in its defense, what it's saying, what these lawyers are saying is that they're willing to pay money for there to be content relevant to the people that they want to get. And the topic is too narrow. So there isn't a magazine of people that have this disease that they can go advertise in. And so for the first time, Google is offering them a service where it's like, you can actually reach people that have this disease if you're lucky. <laughs> and uh, which, I, you know, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, they're, I know they're ambulance chaser lawyers, but I'm sure they're also getting lots of money for people that were, that, you know, had bad things done to them. So it may not be necessarily a bad thing. The trouble is, uh, and then, and then and, and the trouble is, there's no way really for Google to tell the difference between somebody that legitimately says, hey, there's a problem about getting information to people with, you know, asbestos poisoning. Uh, and so I'm going to make a great website about that. Uh, versus the people that say, hey, there's money to be made here. I'm going to run an algorithm that goes and scrapes useless content off of Wikipedia, mushes it all together in a way that it no longer looks like a copyright violation, but still triggers Google to see all the right keywords there. So it comes up in searches, and I'm going to use every method of SEO at my disposal, including you know link farms that create fake links to make the page rank look like it's there. 
and uh, and so on and so forth. And they're just and I think the people that are good at this, a lot of them get caught and get taken down by Google. But the people that are good at this are creating these useless websites on you know wide varieties of different topics. And the only thing they have in common is very very high click through costs or very high bids on the on on the on the keywords. I mean that that must be the way it is mm-hmm. because if you do this the standard honorable way like we tried to do it just you know have good content put ad yeah. sense on it um, I guess unless you happen to pick one of these magic topics that's worth a lot of money uh, certainly for programming topics it's it, it doesn't work at all didn't uh, uh, didn't uh, what's his name plenty of fish make Marcus make a lot of money on Google AdWords allegedly he did but that was really early and it, it, the funny thing about that uh-huh. is I was noticing recently because I actually turned ad block off uh-huh. because it got really like almost like a comedy routine. I'd work on our ad code and I would get frustrated because it wasn't working. And then I would realize, <laughs> realize that I had ad block on and I was blocking myself. <laughs> yeah. So eventually I turned it off. And then you got um, a million pop ups and pop unders. And <laughs> well, you, here's the funny thing I, I left Flash Block on. Uh-huh. You would be shocked how pleasant the web is to use with ad block off but flash. and Flash Block on. Yeah, yeah. Because most yeah, of the annoying ads you will find. Mm are in fact flash ads, believe yep. it or not. I mean, it's, it's about 80% there. There's still 10% that are kind of annoying. They have all the animations, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, it's surprising how effective that is. So that's actually the way I run full-time now is I just run flash block. I leave ad block off. Oh. Not because of any sense of you know, honor or anything, just because I haven't really felt the need to yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that's, so that's where we are. And I do want to emphasize our approach to advertising. And to be clear, we work with uh, Alex P., Mm-hmm. of the daily WTF. He mm-hmm. actually handles our, all our advertising. And we really do try to build ads that are relevant, interesting, and do not animate at all. You know, mm-hmm. a- Advertising in moderation has always been our policy, and we really want to keep it relevant. And I'm actually starting to get excited about some of this fill we talked about where we're just going to go approach companies that we think are cool mm-hmm. <laughs> and try to get them to be our fill rather than crappy Google random null ads. Yeah. You know, that's actually, if you think about it, the higher end the magazine is, the more editorial control they have over their ads, which seems like the opposite. Like the crappy magazines all have advertiser control over the editorial, right? Like if you get one of those free magazines like InfoWorld or one of those trade rags or what you find in the back of uh, the seat back in front of you on the airplane, uh, right. you know, whatever the advertisers want, that's the, those are the stories they're going to be running. They sort of take over the editorial. But if you go to Vogue, then you'll actually find that the editor of Vogue, Anna Wintour, is deciding who the hell get, who gets to run an ad in, in their September issue. And the ads better be relevant, better be attractive, and better not be for clothing from JCPenney because that is not going in Vogue magazine. I'm sorry. That, that's, a great, that's a great analogy because and those, that is and really those, how we yeah. approach it. Yeah, and, and those magazines, on, I mean, people, anybody who reads Vogue, not me, <laughs> but anybody who reads Vogue, I guarantee will tell you that they get just as much, if not more, value out of the ads than out of the editorial. Because that's what they yeah. want to see. They want to see fashion. And if the ads have fashion, it's current, this contempor- contemporarily and attra- contemporary and attractively photographed. That's 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 what they're there for. That's what's so depressing about this, or the the dissolution of the advertising ecosystem, is that it really could be win-win. Like in this Vogue scenario that you're describing, mm-hmm. the ads are cool. It's kind of like the Super Bowl, where people go, "Oh, hey, I'm going to watch the Super Bowl. I'm going to go watch all the ads." Mm-hmm. Now that's an extreme case, obviously, because these mm-hmm. ads are worth you know millions and millions of dollars, and they put all this effort into it. But really, all advertising should be thoughtful, you know, advertising. If it serves, if it's the, the right audience. thing in the right place, if it if it is actually just, yeah, yeah, then 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 it will be. Uh, then, it, then right. it will work, and, it, and, and people will not see it as an intrusion. That's why we have to reject fog bugs ads all the time because they're so offensive. I know. The stuff Joel comes up with, I mean, you would not. It's like that Ivani, Ivani ads, but worse. Ivani? Just okay. I've got to go turn off AdLog <laughs> so I can see these bad ads that you're seeing. Uh, okay. Well, anyway, that's, that's a good topic because you know, that is really right now how we fund Jared, Jeff, and myself. So it's, it's an important topic for actually running a site mm-hmm. that's sustainable. Um, we have some other things that we're doing. Obviously, that's not the only way you want to, you know, monetize the site and have it be a sustainable endeavor. Right. We got the but job. It's a really we should tell people. We yes. Should re- we should remind people if they're looking for a programmer to place an oh. ad at jobs.stuckoutloud.com. That's right. Or jab- jobs.serverfault.com. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the same listings, except on Serverfault, the system administrators come up first. That's hey, right. we probably have to have a conference for the system administrators, too, after dev days. Maybe we should do a big all. The trouble is I'm, I'm, there's no way I'm doing 10 cities for just system administrators. Sorry, guys. <laughs> we, should partner, we should partner with another entity that does stuff like that. 
Who, uh, yeah. Who I don't know who that be? would be. This is the challenge for us is like we're kind of reaching outside our core <laughs> with what this we know. system administrators in general. Yeah. 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 Exactly. But I would love to because I definitely want to see uh, server fault um, get more currency. Hey, Still you want to take while. some listener questions? Yeah, please. All right. Uh, let's try this one. Hi, guys. This is Adam Goucher, and I'm a tester in Toronto. Fog Creek way of hiring programmers has been well documented both online and through this podcast. What I haven't seen is any discussion of how testers are hired at Fog Creek and how they fit into either of your views of how software should be built. Thanks. Bye. Yeah, testers. That's kind of a, that's kind of an interesting question because the neat thing about good testers. Now, so first of all, let let's clarify. I guess we've had this beaten into us. Test-driven development has nothing to do with testing. Different thing altogether. We can completely put that aside. It just happens to use the same word. Okay, that's <laughs> all. But uh, but uh, but the, the kind of testers that that, uh, that I'm talking about here are uh, uh, people that their job is to make the software break and find out when it did and and tell the development team so that the customers don't see it break. And uh, what, what what's interesting about testers is uh, that they they come from a much much more diverse set of backgrounds than programmers. The, the good testers that I've known very rarely come from a computer science background. Sometimes they do. Uh, they may or may not be programmers. Uh, there's a lot of room for non-programmer testers who basically do black box testing where they just sort of bang on the code with a user's perspective and try to find areas in which they think that it will work in a non-user happy making fashion. And uh, every tester's back. Every tester just sort of has a different story of how they got into it and what their what their background is and and, and why they like doing it. The two uh, testers at Fog Creek, um, I, don't, I can't even really explain how, how how they got into it. I don't know if they could either. One of them, you know, one one of them was an example. Uh, one of the testers that we recently hired, this guy Sam, who's a great tester, and um, we just had a summer intern here who knew had a friend, and his friend was sort of interested in getting into the computer business. That's kind of all I heard. And I said, well, all right, if he's smart. And um, we interviewed him, and it sure sounded like he was smart, and he could learn things quickly. Uh, and he was, and he could, and he became a great tester. Um, on the other hand, sometimes you have testers that you think might be really good, and they have all the qualifications. But for whatever reason, when you sit them down in front of code, they just don't, never find any kind of bugs. There, there seemed to be a real dramatic difference in productivity of testers, like even more than with programmers. Um, when I worked at uh, Juno Online Services, Ah, uh, boy, somebody's going to get offended. Oh, well. There were, uh, four t- <laughs> there were four or five testers on the team, I think. I can't remember exactly because the drop-off was real quick. Um, there was Jill, and there was all the other testers. And Jill found 70 to 90% of the bugs that were found by, by the team. And I think I remember doing a calculation that we would rather have Jill two days a week than the rest of the team. Like, I would give up the rest of the team if we could have her for Mondays and Tuesdays looking for bugs. Okay, but what, what do you think that's something particular about her, or um, why? I, I just don't know. She was really good at looking at something with a critical eye. I guess that's the only way I can, I can put it. She would, she would bang on something and she'd say, hmm, I wonder what happens if I try to break this in this particular way. And she just she noticed those things quickly, and she was just really energetic about exercising the product to, to, to find the bugs. Uh so, uh, it, 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 and it's kind of interesting. There are certain classes, like the, 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 the people testers that we have here, they find certain classes of bugs. Those of you that are thinking about automated testing, n- none, of the, none of the bugs that good testers find are caught by automated tests. Uh, the, the, uh, some of them can be in, in principle, but um, mostly it's like, you know, why doesn't this line up? Why doesn't this make sense? Why did I just log on and now I'm not logged on? Why... When I put a open quotation mark and no closed quotation mark into this field, does the server come to a screeching halt? <laughs> so these these are more like usability slash testing. So really, you're getting are you saying you're getting two for the price of one? You're also getting some usability testing of like what you're doing doesn't make sense. It's not wrong, right? But it doesn't make sense. Well, you certainly get uh, a certain level of that, and it's and it's valuable to do usability testing with real users who are in your actual target audience as well. Um, so it's not, but you, you do you, you do definitely get some of that. Um, but what you're really getting is sort of a lot of fit and finish testing and also a lot of edge edge case testing. You know, one of the things that there's a big mentality difference between the programmers and the testers. And the mentality difference is that a programmer spends all day long trying to get the code to work. And so 
they're writing some code and it doesn't work, and then they write some more code and it doesn't work, and then they fix the code and it still doesn't work, and they don't fix the code and it still doesn't work, and they finally get, and each time they're testing one thing to see if their, their code that they just wrote works. Right? Like they change their code and then they do a test and then they change their code and they do a test. And even if you're doing test-driven development, that's what you're doing because you wrote a test and you change your code and you automatically run the test and you change your code and you automatically run the test. And then once that test passes, whether it's manual or automatic, once that test passes, you feel like you're done. You're like, ta-da, okay, bing, move on. And then what you've actually said is there is one condition under which your code appears to work under this one very special set of circumstances. But as a programmer, you then tend to just kind of move on. And you give that to a tester, and the first thing they're going to do is they're going to take that one piece of code, and they're going to try it under 30 different circumstances. And they're going to fill in all the fields, and they're going to leave out all the fields, and they're going to just try all kinds of edge cases, and they're going to try all kinds of interesting and, and fairly consistent, you know, easy-to-learn ways of breaking code. Like, if you have a form that you need to test, try leaving things out, try putting things in, try overfilling all of the fields, try filling the fields with garbage, try filling the fields with Unicode, try filling the fields with a lot of spaces, try filling the fields with, you know, accents and single quotes and double quotes and all kinds of special characters which might have special meaning. And uh, you do all that. And what's amazing is that this always finds 17 bucks, no matter how experienced the developer is. They, they just keep generating code with the same bugs again and again and again. Oh, yeah, I didn't test the Unicode because, I don't know, I just thought it would work. Oh, grumble, grumble, grumble. You've got to use the snowman. Paste in the snowman and see what happens. Yeah. Heck, the snowman is just the beginning of things. The little Unicode character for the snowman. There's uh, also, um, uh, obviously, uh, uh, there's all kinds of characters. Well, there are all kinds of characters that, that, are in a, that, that a good tester will, will find somewhere, a, a list of these characters that are worth testing in various fields. And in fact, uh, in uh, uh, most of our Fogbugs developers, in order to avoid getting these kinds of bugs, um, have a username that has um, uh, JavaScript left, let's see, JavaScript left banana single quote alert colon high or something like that as their actual username. <laughs> and this ensures that if the well, username is ever printed directly without being encoded, uh, that an alert will pop up. Uh, There's just little tricks like that that they do all over the place um, to avoid... Uh, these kinds of bugs, but but uh, uh, t t testers th spend the whole day. Programmers spend the whole day trying to get their code to work, and when they do, they feel like they're done. And testers spend their whole day trying to get the code to break, and they keep trying until they can get it to break. And so it's a very very different mentality, and very useful to have people with with with, with that mentality, kind of attacking the code and trying to make it break. Definitely. Now, what's your experience? Uh about developers as testers? I mean, should somebody like be born a tester and just be testing, testing, testing? Or do you get demoted from being a software developer? Or, I mean, how does that work? I mean, well, what's, it's not really a demotion. It's a different, yeah, I mean, it's a different, it's a different career. It, it, it really is a very different career. It takes a different type of personality type. Uh, it takes different but, skills. I, I, okay, that's a good point. No, I guess what I'm specifically asking, though, is if, say, under duress, you had to press some percentage of developers into service as full-time testers. You just right, had to. Right, right. I mean, would you get good results, bad results? I mean, does it work? Does it not work? Um, if, the, if, if, if you're taking... It, it may or may not. Some, some developers can do it, and some just never can. Uh, some can't, can't learn to be good testers. There's something about the nature of the work that's different enough that a lot of the people that are good developers are bored by testing, and a lot of people that are good testers... Um, can never get things done when they're developing. So, so there's a, a lot of times you'll have somebody that probably should have been a tester working as a developer, and they just don't make progress because they're a little bit too concerned about making everything right all the time. And as a developer, you need to kind of plunge ahead a little bit faster than that. Oh, I see what you're saying. That's a good way to draw the comparison. Yeah, I mean, it's just a, it's, there's, there's a little bit of a personality difference there. And I know testers, there's, there's, there's certainly in, in testing, there is a certain amount of, uh, I don't want to say boredom, but repetitiveness. You know, it, it, for example, uh, a typical task to give a tester is take our Linux installer, take the 10 most pop popular distros of Linux, make try to install the software, and make sure that the following 10 functions work in every distro of Linux. And, you know, that it, sometimes that can be automated, but mm, really not. You know, there's not, you don't get a lot of success with automating. There are ways to automate some, some certain types of tests, but the automated scripts that you write don't last very long. Um, and uh, 
And so somebody really just needs to go and figure out how to install 10 different distros of Linux on virtual machines or on computers in the lab, which in itself is not really automatable because every distro has its own setup program, which is going to ask different questions every single time. So that really has to be a manual process of getting the you know, top 10 distros and booting them up and then uh, you know, running the installer and then checking if it works. You know, some parts of that may be automatable or not. But there's a certain, you know, in, in, in some ways, some parts of that can be monotonous, and a lot of good developers find that too monotonous to, to deal with. There's a certain rigor to testing that I, I find a little scary. Like some of the personalities in the testing community can mm -hmm. be a little int intimidating mm -hmm. because they're so intense. Yeah. And I think maybe that's what you're getting at with the differences in personality. Because as a developer, I think sometimes I'm, frankly, very sloppy. Right. Right. Uh, and that, if you're a tester, that's not any, you'll never get anything done as a tester if you're really sloppy. Uh, you have to be ultra methodical. I mean, because you, you think of developers as being very, very methodical. And to some extent, that's true. I'm probably more methodical than, say, the average Joe on the street in terms mm -hmm. of how I approach things. Yeah. Um, but there's a certain looseness to the development process where there's so many different ways to do something. And nobody can even tell you if, if that's the right way, <laughs> right, just a right. way. <laughs> and you have to sort of make a judgment call. And there's sort of aesthetic reasons you might want to do it one way versus another. And that's really interesting to drill down on the difference in personality between a good tester and a good developer. Because there is a tendency, I think, to group them as, oh, you're a tester, you're a developer. That's the same skill set. And what I'm hearing from you is that they're kind of nah. really different skill sets <laughs> uh, <laughs> to the extent that you could be good at one and bad at the other, like almost in an opposite way. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times that's definitely true. And, and, and certainly I think it's all, almost always a mistake to think of a tester as being a not good developer or that that's some kind of a role that you put a developer that's not that great into that role. Because um, that's just not true. They're just sort of, they're sort of, they're, they're, they're independent and different. Um, they're independent and different things. Sometimes people accidentally go into testing when they should have gone into development and vice versa. Um, and it's definitely the case that if you're a tester and you have good programming skills, then a lot of the routine stuff you might automate away. You'll, you'll, you'll write scripts for yourself and you'll automate things. Uh, and you'll be a more effective tester. So there's no question that some programming skills are helpful, although not necessary for a typical block box tester. Right. Well, that was, that was a great question. Do we have any more questions? Um, yeah, sure. Here's a kind of long question, but let's, let's, let's go for it anyway. It's sort of on a different topic altogether. Hi, Joel. Hi, Jeff. This is Kevin Stewart in Seattle, although I was formerly a lifelong New Yorker. Um, I'm an engineering manager at Adobe, and I wanted to say first that I love the podcast, look forward to it every week, and I thank definitely you, love you. Stack Overflow. It's a fantastic site. Uh, my question is, um, for both of you, what do you think the role of standards groups should be in the industry, particularly the W3C? I'm currently working on a project where we're making heavy use of RDF and metadata. And internally, I get a lot of pushback um, because people see it as this ivory tower thing that has no practical value and it's you know architecture astronaut stuff. But for this particular problem, it's actually a really good solution. And we've seen the recent you know killing of XHTML for HTML5. I think we're just seeing a reflection of what normally goes on is that the things that people actually implement end up becoming the de facto standards rather than the things that committees sit around and you know, write up white papers on and tell you why it's you know, architecturally superior. And I think that's been the case with like, the whole RDF semantic web thing, is that too many people were writing papers rather than writing software. Um, you know, but in my particular case, it's actually working out for me. But I wanted to get your thoughts on it. Should um, developers really drive what eventually becomes the standards and then the standards committees document them? Or do you still see a role for people to sort of sit down and write these big specs and then sort of work back and forth between implementation and design? Uh, love to hear your thoughts on it. Keep up the great work. Uh, talk to you soon. Bye. Well, I, I have an opinion about what I would like to see from standards groups. I, I view them as cool. sort of the smoky back rooms where these large <laughs> companies mm -hmm. like Google and Microsoft and mm -hmm. Apple and whoever else has skin in the game can actually fight it out right. and actually come to some sort of consensus about, here's what we're going to do. You know, even though we have all these different competitive pressures and as companies we have no financial reason to work for each other or with each other, mm -hmm. <laughs> we're going to you know, grudgingly agree that there should be this commonality in all our products. Mm -hmm. And that is what I want to see. But that's an emphasis on the commercial side. I, you know, I view them as like 
take all the stuff that's happening commercially, get these people in a room, and get them to stop doing <laughs> the most egregiously annoying things that are different in the product. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that it's would like once the, the product, yeah. So you're describing a situation where once the product exists, and once you already have. Uh, well, there could be some future planning as well. It could be like yeah. stuff that's in beta or stuff that's about to come out, you know? Well, there's a, I think there's a, uh, a popular conception that the specs or let's say the standards that are successful are the standards that came along and codified something that was already being practiced and maybe polished a few little corners where the practice wasn't all that smooth or that consistent, but mostly they were codifying things. And that a lot of people have tried to create standards in advance of there even being a product and, uh, and, and the standards become completely irrelevant, like pretty much who everything to do around RDF, I guess, that this guy was talking about. Yeah, RDF, I don't know enough about it. I mean, I know there's, there's push to have metadata in the pages more. Right, right. There's something called the, oh gosh, the Dublin Core? Yeah, the Dublin Core. There, well, the thing is, that stuff was all sort of stillborn um, for reasons that, uh, um, actually, what's the guy's name? Was it, uh, oof. Boy, I that wish guy. I could remember. I need more to work on then. Yeah, that, that guy. guy. The guy that did that thing? Yes, in the best okay. software writing. <laughs> oh, he's in your book? I think so. And you don't know his name, then that's on you. Hold on. <laughs> I got to find it. Okay, we're going to have a little intermission in the podcast. Well, okay, Clay Shirky and Paul Ford have talked about this. Paul Ford. Okay, Paul Ford. Uh so uh, actually, Clay Shirky wrote the first one. He wrote an article about the semantic web, syllogism, and worldview. Um, Paul Ford kind of wrote a very, very good f- follow-up. Um, the, 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 the semantic web was a classic example because everybody paid attention to that because Tim Berners-Lee went into this semantic web research area after he invented the regular web. And his idea was instead of just a web that sort of describes you know, text, here's some text and this part is bold, it actually has some meaning, like here's a name and this is the address where that person lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the trouble is that um, the semantic web absolutely went absolutely nowhere and everybody kept thinking, you know, certainly the mainstream media said, well, Tim Berners-Lee, oh my, so this must be the next big thing. And one thing that they did do is they generated a lot of specifications for everybody to standardize on long before anybody was using the stuff. So the specifications are full of you ain't going to need it and all kinds of, you know, very, very um, uh, legal, legal, legally, lawyerly kind of clauses about how things should be implemented that uh, don't actually correspond to anything that people are really doing in the real world. So the specs were relevant. And what they did is they sort of ossified uh, a, 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 a group of people that were all trying to figure out how to make something work. And they sort of prematurely nailed it down before it had evolved into something that anybody wanted to use. It's like normally what happens in the marketplace is lots of people try different things and some of them are successful and some of them are failures and the ones that are successful, other people imitate them and there's some evolution where there's some variations that come in and eventually uh, you have some kind of thing that everybody is pretty much doing kind of the same thing but it's not totally standardized yet. Um, and then you can, and, and that gets to evolve through a process of like literally survival of the fittest. And that's, that's kind of neat. And then if, if at that point, maybe when everybody's doing it already, is a good time to try to write these specs and to, to nail it down and to get it exactly right. But if you do it prematurely, then, um, and I think the, the other thing that happened with is all those WS-STAR standards, mm-hmm. which were, I guess, on top, built on top of SOAP, like these standards for web services that were over, overly complex, and a lot of them were standardized even before there were anybody who really agreed that we were going to use SOAP to implement web services. And actually, it turns out that what did evolve is that the most successful web services and the web APIs were the ones that used the RESTful interfaces, not the SOAP-based interfaces, and that the WS specs were all too complicated and too impossible to understand uh, for anybody to act- actually implement, and it was all kind of a big waste of effort. So the problem is that you could be solving a problem nobody cares about, mm-hmm. or you could be solving the wrong problem entirely. Or producing and a solution are, that's not, you know, it's a wrong solution because, you know, this isn't the solution that evolved in the marketplace. It's one that a bunch of, let's face it, PhDs in a room thought would be a good solution. Exactly. So the, I, I appreciate what you're saying there with the, the time element of 
I guess that kind of prevents it from being architecture astronomy at some level. I mean, you, can you really say it's architecture astronomy if you're, if you're dealing with working products that people are using? Right. Well, it that's kind of why, almost by definition rules that out. And that's one reason why these specifications, the, the, the successful specifications like the HTML specifications are so inconsistent and so full of complicated rules that don't make any sense and impossible to follow because they're attempting to describe a bug that some programmer created that was copied by all the other web browsers, for example. Some mm -hmm. programmer in who knows where, accent, let's say Illinois for the sake of argument, Eric, <laughs> in Spyglass, the original <laughs> version of NCSA Mosaic or Spyglass or something like that, and there was some just bug in the way that certain things behaved uh, or some you know, particularly interesting or abstract behavior that was just either a coincidence of the, their implementation or literally a bug. And in order to make... You know, everybody that copied the web browser then copied that bug intentionally, knowing full well that it was a bug. Like the refer that's spelled wrong in the HTTP headers. The word refer is spelled incorrectly. And everybody had to copy that because they needed it to be standard. And, uh, and, and then these, these... Wait, wait, wait. Are you saying Eric actually made that spelling error? Is this, no. Is this a true fact? No, 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 no. That's, uh, I'm conf conflating things. I just see Eric Sink worked on uh, Spyglass, which was one of the very, Well, because I, I kind of think that browsers. personally, the misspelling of refer, I kind of, that's a personal slight, I think. That yeah, I, th I don't know who to really blame for that. That was probably okay. the NCSA web server. That was probably okay. on the web server, not the web browser. Okay, because if it was Eric, I was going to have to have words with Eric, but I'm, I'm glad it's not. So well, maybe it was a browser. To. Maybe it was... Uh, Anyway, they all had to copy that because otherwise things would just stop working. And, and, um, and at some point, it just gets encoded in the spec, and the spec says, yes, this is spelled wrong, but this is how we do it. And, or the, uh, not spec, the, uh, you know, the, the standard, the official international yes. standard that everybody ratifies. Uh, or, even worse, somebody's upset about the spelling and says, you can use either, but it's preferred. And, and, and the, the, it becomes this very, very complicated legal document. And, and, and getting some... Some agreement on that legal document involves back and forth negotiations by a bunch of people who are playing politics for the first time or playing diplomacy for the first time in their lives. And they're having a lot of fun just sort of in their smoke-filled room making up even more complicated castles in the sky that, when you think about it, are too complicated for anybody to implement. But if you do implement them, will actually interoperate correctly. <laughs> so... Uh, so what do you think the proper role is then? I mean, just summarize for me. Like, what, 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 if you could envision this working you know, in a way that's actually efficient and effective, yeah. what would that be? I, I'm not really sure. I think that, uh, I think that th th there, are, there are almost always is a de facto standard. And once the de facto standard comes to become what the industry is doing, then it's okay to try to codify it. And at that point, you can try to polish the little problems and get everybody on the same page of a you know, big version 2.0. That happened, think of the example of with the C programming language. Started out as um, the C programming language, first edition, the Kernahan and Ritchie book. And there was some stuff that was just not good enough, like the type, the way types worked and stuff was just not that great. And, and once it became a standard, um, the, the ANSI committee actually came up with ANSI C, and they changed a little bit of stuff. And they got everybody on the same page. It wasn't a lot of stuff, and it was mostly backwards compatible. But they did change a couple of things because uh, uh, it just n really needed to be changed. I don't really know the complete history of that. Um, but uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's okay for a specification committee or a standardization committee to discover ambiguities and then just have to and, and resolve them somehow because they have to. But... As, you know, to, to a certain extent, you really kind of have to wait until the, the market evolves a way of doing things so as to get the full benefit of survival of the fittest, of the evolutionary process. Sure. I don't think we really answered this guy's question. Well, I, I think we kind of... <laughs> <laughs> the discussion around the discussion, I think, points to the problem that a lot of these groups have, which is that right. it becomes, what are, what are we doing? You know, what are we accomplishing? Yeah. And that's why I'm so hardcore about focusing on like shipping products and what can we ship that will codify this in a way and just like get all these people on the same page so we don't have all this controversy about you right. know, why inter let me give you an example internet explorer doesn't have svg support uh, pretty much every other browser does mm -hmm. that's really friggin annoying mm -hmm. i'm sure there's some reason for that that somebody's going to justify but from a user's perspective it sucks because mm -hmm. you just want to have some commonality across the browsers that you can sort of count on being there mm -hmm. and that to me is sort of the the end state of these these you know, standards. It's just have something reasonable that's at the core. You can you can try to make a standard and 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 try to use that as one way of politically, let's say, forcing Microsoft to support SVG. 
Um, or you can make them feel bad by coming up with things like these acid tests that are just there so that Microsoft looks stupid and, uh, and is forced to change things in their browser. Um, you know, all of which were legit, but um, you know, now we're talking about how do you apply political pressure uh, to a company to conform to what the other companies are doing when they may have strategic reasons why they want everybody else to conform to what they're doing. And that's just a political game, and no matter what the standards committees do, it's going to play out. Uh, you know, in the uh, it's, it's going to play out in the mar marketplace. Now, one thing which which has has happened recently a couple of times. I think this happened with e ECMAScript, which is JavaScript, I guess, the standard version, and um, uh, C Sharp. Is that these things were submitted to standards committees before they really evolved. And before there were a lot of implementations, a lot of competing implementations, uh, in in order to um, maybe j jumpstart the creation of competing implementations, I guess. So, mm -hmm. I, in, in the case of C sharp being submitted to the ECMA, um, I, I think that the political reason there was basically a, 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 lang a language which is standardized is more valuable in the marketplace than a language which is just one company that did whatever they felt like. And in order to get that value out of the marketplace, it's worth it to a company like Microsoft to submit their language to this International Standards Committee and let them fool around making a big, gigantic document specifying everything that they already did and pretend that this is the spec so that they can say, hey, this language is now a standard. But what really matters is for there to be, you know, kind of multiple implementations that all conform to the standard, not just that the Standards Committee has somehow produced a document which is a legalese description of a product that's already on the market that doesn't serve anybody's needs. Right. Wow. Well, that was a good, that was a good question. But the question one. was sort of like, uh, I'm having an argument with people at work. It would be really nice if Joel and Jeff weighed in. <laughs> so uh, to, to the uh, ask of that question, you are right. <laughs> We're on your side. You can tell your boss that you, you brought this question to Joel and Jeff. And they have decreed you the victor. And you are victorious. Do we have Do we have time to squeeze? Do we have any more questions? Because I feel we haven't done questions in a while. We haven't, and we got a bunch of questions. Here's a Here's a random one. Hi, Jeff and Joel. It's George from North Carolina. In one of your recent podcasts, you talk about open sourcing Stack Overflow, <laughs> and I was wondering, instead of open sourcing it sooner rather than later, why not just write a book about it uh, and help out the community at large that way? And then after it's run its useful financial course, then open source it. So write a book. Okay, I think you're imagining something about books <laughs> that is not actually true here. Nobody makes any money whatsoever writing books. Every single book that you see in the computer section in, in the bookstore, the, mm -hmm. the author who wrote that book, every single one of those books, uh, the author was working for substantially less than minimum wage when you work out the total amount of time they spent on creating the book and the total number of hours they put into it, and the total amount that they got paid through all their royalties and everything like that. Um, you get a, a, a best-selling programming book, sells maybe 5,000 to 10,000 copies, and the writer gets about a dollar each. So typically you get about $6,000, maybe $10,000 from a programming book. And it takes about a year full-time to write a good one. It's not quite minimum. No, it, it is it is odd to go it is a, it is odd to go the book route and yeah. I think too it, it, it's odd to bring up the book route because we've been doing so much of this in public anyway I mean we have this podcast which you're currently listening to yeah we have the blog we have the site itself and many of the questions that I ask if you go to my history mm -hmm. <laughs> on Stack Overflow and Server Fault are about the site right like here's things we're doing on the site we have this problem we're trying to fix this right? yeah we really crowdsource the building of the site. Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, it's the thing that helps us build the thing, which mm -hmm. is great. I mean, that's fantastic. And then we have MetaStack Overflow, which was an entire site dedicated to nothing but discussion of why we do things, how we do things, and support mixed in as well, and also feature requests and things like that. Um, so it's very much a system that's almost recursive already, you know? I don't know. I mean... I know Joel does not like to talk about the open source thing at all, for the record. So I'm, <laughs> even leery, I'm leery of just even bringing it up. Uh, but Flogging that dead horse, you mean? Yes. yes. Uh, but it was pointed out that we do give back to the community in other ways, not, not necessarily by visibility into our source code, 
but you know we have the Creative Commons data dump. Right. Um, some all, of the algorithm- all the content on Stack Overflow is all licensed from the Creative Commons. You can take it and use it and mush, mush it around. And-, and some of the algorithms, like the, uh, the HTML sanitization, I thought was particularly important. I gave that back to the community. That's out there. You can get to that. The WMD, the, the actual editor we use for Markdown, that's, you can get the source code for that. That's JavaScript. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, so a lot of the code that's in Stack Overflow is not really very sexy code. I mean, yeah. I think the attraction for some people... I guess the reason to open source it, my, my reason to open source it was just to make it pervasive. I feel like I want the quality of communication on the internet to improve. Yep. And I feel like the PHP BB paradigm must die. Must, really must die. I, I really so feel that you. strongly about it. Yeah. That it's just the, the entire format of that discussion is wrong. And to the extent that we can replace it, that would be one way to do that. Now, there's, there's many ways to reach that goal, as Joel has pointed out to me again and again. Uh, but that would be one of the main reasons for me to do it, was just to make it much more pervasive. And even then, we'd have a bunch of hurdles. Like, we'd have to convert to mono. We'd have to remove our SQL Server dependency. Um, there's a lot of hurdles in, in the place. And then the other thing that I'm afraid of, if we open source, like, a lot of people would want to helpfully give us patches that we couldn't take mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons. Um, and also, to some extent, like I, I kind of like having control over what I think the product is and, and what we're building and, and the direction of it. And I don't want to be pulled in like 10 different directions in terms of, hey, let's make it a social networking site. That would be like a horror story for me. That's everything I don't want, right? But if you open source, somebody could fork you and say, you know what, I'm going to make the ultra-social Facebook version of Stack Overflow. I'm getting an ulcer just thinking about this, actually, uh, <laughs> where you can friend people and, you know, you can send little private messages to each other and it's all about hanging out and being buddies. Oh, God, don't <laughs> God, give them any, horrible. Don't give them, don't uh, give them any ideas. Uh, <laughs> Social. Right. So that would be a downside to me of open sourcing is like people will be able to take this thing that I created and pervert it in this crazy way that I totally don't agree with. And then you have um, communism. And then, yeah, the world would come to an end, basically. <laughs> I mean, let me just summarize for you. End of world. Communism. Yeah. Hey, so, um... Uh, I, I just mentioned on the last on the last episode we, we 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 argued about or I ranted about upgrading of Windows Seven from the release candidate to the uh, yes. final version. Yes, um, yes. Which is still the the official answer that I'm getting. I don't know. It's not really released. How did you? How did you got the RTM version from somewhere? I have ways. It's not on MSDN yet. I have friends. I have okay. ways. Okay. So it's going to be on MSDN in about a week. So until then, I can't really try this. Actually, in a couple of days, uh, it should be showing up for MSDN subscribers, uh, the RTM version. But um, what a bunch of people mentioned is that there is a little file somewhere among those installer files that come with Windows 7. Uh, that, and it's just a little text file buried somewhere that specifies um, what the minimum version number under which it is willing, over which it is willing to install. And so if you edit that file with Notepad, uh, you can tell the installer that it should just go ahead and allow you to upgrade a thingamajiggy. Now, nobody's ever tried this, but it did work for people who were upgrading from the beta to the release candidate. So it may work for people who are trying to upgrade, upgrade from the release candidate to the RTM final version of Windows 7. The best place to learn about that is on SuperUser, which will be our question of the week. Uh, SuperUser question 1298. Hey, that's still behind a password, right? What's the password it for is, the SuperUser uh, site? It's uh, ewok.adventure. I'll ewok. put it in the show notes. Ewok.adventure. And then go to superuser.com and look for question 1298. And uh, um, you'll see the technique uh, linked to there and my answer, which has not yet been voted up. But um, that'll be the canonical question for how do you get the RTM version of Windows 7 to uh, be upgraded over the right. RC version. It's no logo turtle question. That's, that, to me, is your, the pinnacle defining moment of Joel Spolsky on Stack Overflow is his whole, how do you move the turtle and logo question. Yeah. Well, but I didn't ask this question. This is Nathan DeWitt. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I just uh, wrote and, the answer, which is currently not winning. Uh, I have a related uh, super user post, which I'll also link, which is me failing. Now, I've upgraded all the machines in my house to Windows 7, but mm-hmm. one really didn't want to do it. <laughs> mm. And I couldn't quite figure out why, so I documented the process of basically a failed... Now, it just rolls back, so nothing traumatic happens, to be clear. When I say failed upgrades, I mean it just didn't go to 7. It goes back to Vista. Um, but I did document the heck out of it in SuperUser. Unfortunately, it wasn't a positive resolution. But What's the, uh, what's other, the number? Uh, I don't have it in front. I'll put it in the show notes. Okay. Check so, the show we'll notes have... at blog.stackoverload.com, where you can also find a link to the transcript wiki where volunteers from around the world contribute to provide 
transcript of these uh, boring conversations that uh, that Jeff and I have every week. Um, and if you would volunteer, that would be really awesome. Helps the hearing impaired and also people that just kind of want to pass around links to things that we said without having to pass around links to gigantic MP3 files. It's really helpful, and we thank all the volunteers around the world who are contributing to those wiki transcripts. If you have a question that you want Jeff and I to address or something you want us to talk about in a future podcast, and no dead horse beating, please, email it. You can record an MP3 or Ogvorbis file and email it to podcast at stackoflow.com or call stackoflow podcast hotline. Does it have a phone number? I don't know. There, there is a phone number. I think I, <laughs> 646-826-3879. Try to keep it under a minute and a half and, and spell your name so we can spell it correctly in these show notes. Um, what else? Uh, any other, any other like, news, announcement kind of things that we usually put at the end here? No, I think that's, we definitely covered it. Yeah, that's about it. All right, we'll see you next week. Thank you very much. Bye. You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is Jeff Atwood. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.